Well, let me just say at the outset what a joy and a privilege that it has been to be up here in the Pacific Northwest for the last few days. This is my wife and I's first trip up here, and regardless of the smoke, it has been such a privilege. And at the outset, I just want to thank Pastor Oliver and, and Larry and Dar for the invitation to come up here and to preach God's word to you this morning. It is truly a distinct privilege to be able to open up God's word and proclaim it to you. I send you greetings from Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, where I serve as a pastoral intern right now, predominantly in the college ministry, adult ministries as well. But this morning, it is going to be a privilege to be able to peer into the heart of our Savior as he prays for his church. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This morning, we'll be studying a passage of scripture that concludes what has been commonly designated as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see on your bulletin that I've titled this message, The Bridegroom's Prayer for His Beloved. The Bridegroom's Prayer for His Beloved. The doctrine of Christ's intercession on behalf of his people is one of the most soul-comforting and faith-strengthening doctrines in the entirety of the Christian faith. And yet, sadly enough, it's often one of the most neglected and so often, or not talked about, doctrines. I mean, just practically thinking, how often in your conversations about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ do you converse about the fact that he prays for you. Generally, we'll talk about the cross work of Jesus, and rightly so. However, this morning, I would submit to you that Jesus' high priestly ministry of making intercession on behalf of his people should be the regular meditation in your Christian walk in life. John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan, said the actual intercession of Christ is a fundamental article of our faith and a principal foundation of the church's consolation. So if the doctrine of Christ's intercession for his people is a foundational doctrine in terms of a fundamental article of the faith and a fundamental truth by which the church is consoled, then we must understand what Christ's intercession entails. Question 55 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is Christ's heavenly intercession? What does it do for his people? In response to that question, the catechism says, Christ makes intercession by appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily faults, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. And this is the faithful intercession of our Lord that we have the privilege to consider from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, as we parachute into our passage of study this morning, we need to understand the broader context and the flow of the Gospel of John. The first 12 chapters of the Gospel has been commonly designated the Book of Signs. 
And in those first 12 chapters, John highlights the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as he performs these signs that demonstrate and validate his messianic claims. You know, Jesus is the one who turned water into wine, John chapter 2. Jesus is the one who healed the sick and the lame, John chapter 5. Jesus is the one who, with the meager provisions of the loaves and bread, fed the multitudes, John chapter 6. Jesus is the one who walked on water, John chapter 6. Ultimately, climactically, in John chapter 11, Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. And then the book of signs concludes in chapter 12 with this condemnation of unbelief. In chapter 12, verse 37, it says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Perhaps one of the most sad verses in the entirety of the Bible. And it's at this point, as we cross the precipice into chapter 13, that Jesus redirects his ministry approach, and he specifically instructs and teaches his disciples. He turns from the lost sheep of the house of Israel, from the masses, and directs his focus on the remaining disciples. In chapters 13 through 17, commonly known as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, Jesus teaches his disciples about what ministry will look like following his departure. The overall theme of the upper room discourse can be summarized as the private and personal instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ to his people, teaching them how to minister subsequent to his ascension to the majesty on high and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the church age. And as we come to chapter 17 of the upper room discourse, the didactic, the teaching portion of the discourse has concluded and Jesus bows his knees before the Father and he prays. Praying for things such as that the Son and the Father would be glorified through the accomplishment of redemption, through the Son willingly and voluntarily offering himself on behalf of his people. We see that in the first five verses of chapter 17. Jesus prayed explicitly on behalf of the 11 remaining disciples in verses 6 through 19, praying for things such as their preservation, their jubilation, and their sanctification. And it's at this point in our study that we come at the end of the high priestly prayer. Jesus continues to offer faithful intercession, but the group in view changes. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for his bride, the church, composed and comprised of all believers that would believe in him throughout the duration of the church age. In verses 20 through 26, we behold Jesus praying to the Father on behalf of all believers, praying for their unification and their glorification. And as we work our way through our text of study this morning, I want us to ask three questions that will disclose to us the bridegroom's prayer for his beloved. Three questions that will serve as the outline of our study this morning. But prior to engaging in our verse-by-verse -verse study, I want to put the text before your eyes. So let's read our passage of study. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded by the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And these are the words that he pens. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The first question that I want us to ask of our text is, who does Jesus pray for? Who does Jesus pray for? And we find our answer to that question in verse 20. Look with me in your Bible at verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Throughout the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus has been specifically focused on a particular group that he's been praying for. You can look back at verse 9, and Jesus says this. He says, I ask on their behalf. Well, on whose behalf? Verse 6, the men whom you have gave me out of the world. I ask on behalf of them. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Jesus is explicit that he's not praying for all mankind in general, but he is specifically intentional that he is praying on behalf of those whom the Father has given him. And specifically in verses 6 through 19, these are the 11 remaining disciples. But I want you to notice as we come to verse 20, Jesus says, I do not pray on behalf of them alone. In other words, I don't ask exclusively for these 11 remaining disciples who were within my earshot. And he adds this additional group that he prays for in verse 20. And he identifies them as those also who believe in me through their word. These ones are the focus of this last section of the high priestly prayer. He prays on behalf of all those who will believe in him through the testimony and the word and the witness of the disciples. Well, who might this group include? Might it include Augustine, who after strolling in the garden in Milan, heard the child say, tole lege, tole lege, take up and read. And he read from the book of Romans. Might it include the great reformer Luther, who after an arduous study of the righteousness of God, specifically from Romans chapter 1, came to see that the righteousness of God was an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us. Luther exclaimed after coming to this awareness, when I discovered that I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. 
Let's get more personal. Might this include you? Who after hearing the gospel proclaimed to you by a faithful parent or a faithful church member, whether that be within church or whether that be out on the street, heard the gospel or maybe it was from your reading and studying of the New Testament where you came face to face with the person and work of Jesus Christ. The truth is, if you are a Christian in here this morning, you have believed the apostolic gospel, the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus. And by such, you are in reference in this prayer. You are in focus in Jesus' prayer here in John 17 because he prays for those who believe in me through their word. Christian, Jesus prays for you. Let that thought sink in for a moment. You know, it is a peculiar grace when a brother or a sister will shoulder the burden that you're bearing and will pray for you and intercede for you and bring you and draw your struggle, your burden, your sin, whatever, before the throne of grace. That is a peculiar grace. But how much more that the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, prays for you. I currently reside with my wife in Texas, and one of the things that Texans are known for is country music. <laughs> and the great country musician and theologian Garth Brooks sang, one of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayer. <laughs> Let me encourage you, believer. In the prayer life of our Lord, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. Every single one of the prayers of Jesus is efficacious and it is answered. It is pleasing to the Father because he prays in accordance with the will of God because he is God. You might remember in John chapter 11, in the context of the raising of Lazarus, Jesus says, I knew that you always hear me, Father. And just as the high priest in the old covenant, bore the 12 tribes of Israel upon his breast as he entered into the service of Yahweh, entered into the holy of holies. So too the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, bears your name upon his breast as he draws nigh to the Father and intercedes on your behalf. Unless you're prone to think that this is the only instance of the Lord Jesus praying on behalf of you, consider the words of St. Paul in Romans and the author of Hebrews. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 34, Paul writes, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7, 25 says, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, at this very moment, the exalted and the glorified Lord Jesus Christ prays for you, Christian." Praise for you. Does this not encourage you 
to face the trials of this life and the hardships of this life? Does this not encourage you that the very one who shed his blood on Calvary's cross for your soul is the very one who prays for you? Does this not stimulate you to greater fervency and evangelism to the lost and dying world? Jesus prays for you. Does this not cause you to want to come alongside a brother or a sister in a great struggle or a travesty and pray for them and intercede for them? And then encourage him that there's one greater who's praying for you right now, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus directs his petitions to the Father on behalf of all of those who would subsequently believe in him throughout the church age. And I want you to notice from verse 20, what is the means that generates this belief? Jesus prays that this belief is generated through their word. It is through their word, the word of truth, John 17, 17. So not only are believers sanctified by means of the word of truth, John 17, but they are saved by the word of truth. And from the word of truth, true faith is born. You might have this verse memorized, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. James 1.18, we have been brought forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, we have been born again through the living and enduring word. And this was the gospel, the message that was preached to you, verse 25. And prior to departing from this verse, I want to be careful to mention that if you are here this morning and you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ if you have not embraced him with the heart of faith, then not only do you not possess salvation, but you don't possess the comfort that these verses bring. We'll soon discuss the contents of Jesus' prayer for his own. But I want you to understand this morning, if you are not a believer, Jesus' prayer does not avail for you. He prays on behalf of those who believe in me through their word. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you're a visitor, if you came in here this morning understanding that I am not right with God, that I am still in rebellion against God, unbeliever, what you must do is you must repent from your sins. You must turn from your sins. You must forsake your sins. You must acknowledge that your sin is an affront to a holy God. You must understand that it is high treason against the king of heaven. You must mourn over that sin. You must turn with the eyes of faith and embrace the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly and voluntarily went to the cross to die for your sins. Verse 20 states that Jesus prays for those who believe in him and believe in him through their word. Well, that must cause us to ask the question, what is this word? What is the apostolic gospel that you must believe? I mean, this is absolutely essential. And the apostolic gospel that you must believe, the biblical gospel is that God is creator and judge. 1 Peter 1, 17. And God is infinitely and absolutely and transcendently holy. 
1 Peter 1.16. You must understand that God demands perfect holiness from his people. 1 Peter 1.15, be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You must understand that every single one of us here in this room this morning and across the globe, save one man, has transgressed the law of God and fallen short of his glory, Romans 3.23. You must understand that you can do nothing to merit or to garner the acceptance or the approval of God of your own doing. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Galatians 2. You must believe that there has been one appointed as the perfect prophet, priest, and king to live a life of perfect obedience to God's law, to fulfill all standard of righteousness, and then to be led like a lamb to its slaughter, to the cross, to be crushed by God the Father under the full weight of his wrath, for the sins of his people. You must understand and believe that God raised him from the dead, demonstrating that he had accepted his sacrifice, vindicating him as the Lord over death, Romans 4. This is the apostolic gospel. This is the biblical gospel that you must believe in. Friends, do you believe in this gospel? Not have you believed it. Not did you sign a card one time, walk an aisle. Not can you one time in your life say that, yes, I went to summer camp and I believed in Jesus. That has no bearing upon your life now. Are you believing this gospel this very morning? If so, if so, then you can have confidence and trust that this prayer is for you. And not only that, but that Jesus prays for you right now at the right hand of God. This then brings us to a second question that I want us to ask of our passage. And that is, what does Jesus pray for? We looked at who does Jesus pray for in verse 20. Now I want us to consider what does Jesus pray for? The answer to that question is found in verses 21 through 23. And it's in verses 21 through 23 that there are two specific prayer requests that the Lord Jesus offers on behalf of believers that I want us to look at. Let's look at verses 21 through 23 together. Jesus prays that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's in these verses, from verse 21 through 24, that Jesus offers these two prayer requests. And the first prayer request that Jesus offers, you can see it there in the verses, is a prayer for complete unification. A prayer 
for complete unification. And as we look at these verses together, I want you to see three specific characteristics of this prayer for unification. Now, just a brief disclaimer as we work our way through this text, these characteristics are so tightly woven in these verses that we're not gonna be looking at them in a necessarily linear way. So like verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. But we're gonna keep coming back to these three characteristics that pervade these verses. So let's look at the first characteristic of Jesus's prayer for complete unification. And the first characteristic of Jesus's prayer request is the petition for unification. The petition for unification. Look back in your Bible at verse 21. Jesus says that they may all be one. That small conjunction there, that, it introduces us to the specific prayer request that Jesus offers on behalf of believers. It alerts us to the actual request that he petitions the Father for. And you can see in verse 21 that this first petition is that believers may all be one. The word one is a, is a small adjective that is employed with frequency through these verses. In fact, in this short passage of study that we're looking at this morning, it's used a total of four times. And this adjective of one is used metaphorically to describe a unity, a oneness with one another. Well, now we must ask the question, what is this unity that Jesus is praying for? And prior to discussing what true biblical unity is, we must need to be clear what unity is not. First, this oneness and unity that Jesus prays for is not unanimity or uniformity. In other words, it's not adhering in lockstep in every detail and description of a common belief or practice. In other words, everyone believes the exact same things and practices the exact same things as a cookie cutter model. It's not the type of unity that Jesus is praying for. Secondly, this oneness and unity that Jesus is praying for is not merely an external form of unity. It's not this go along to get along disposition. Many would assert that the various denominations that exist within the broader realm of Christianity is an affront to what Jesus prays for in unity in this passage. And so what they would promote is this interdenominational cooperation or ecumenicalism as the way forward to answer Jesus's prayer for unity. But that's not the unity that Jesus is praying for. Merrill Tenney, a commentator, is helpful when he writes, Within the church of historic Christianity, there have been wide divergences of opinion and ritual. I mean, we can see that, can we not? Those that would adhere to infant baptism versus believer's baptism or a dispensational theology versus covenant theology. However, listen to what Tenney says. He says, unity prevails wherever there is a deep and a genuine experience of Christ. For the fellowship of the new birth transcends all historical and denominational boundaries. 
Let's rewind that statement. The fellowship of the new birth transcends all historic and denominational boundaries. And so along these same lines, that we must be clear what true unity is. True biblical unity is grounded upon the firm foundation of the truth of God's word and his gospel. Any fellowship or unity at the expense of that truth is a demonic and a false type of unity. As Pastor Oliver mentioned, I'm in the end stages of my seminary education, expected to graduate this fall. And that has led me and my wife to consider the potential opportunities that the Lord would have us and where he would have us serve, as I would serve as an under-shepherd in his flock. And so that caused us to start reaching out to various opportunities. And so I went to a trusted seminary job board and I started looking at churches and I found a church that, you know, I agreed with doctrinally and, and with philosophy and it looked great. And so I sent them an application or just an interest. Little did I know in the same town, there was a church of the same name. <laughs> it got sent to the other church. And now as I was talking with this pastor, unbeknownst to me, and mind you, this, this is a pastor who graduated from a reputable Southern Baptist institution. His boast, his selling point of their church was the fact that they were represented by 12 different denominations, including Roman Catholic, Anglican, Church of Christ, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, and so on. And I sat there and I, I mean, I, I was at a loss for words. I mean, what do you say to that? It, sir, are you describing the United Nations or are you describing the blood-bought community of Jesus Christ? I didn't know if I need to start preaching the gospel to this guy. Because how can you worship in spirit and truth with those who deny the gospel? Such as the Roman Catholics who would say that those who believe in justification by faith, the, the precious doctrine that we hold, are anathema, are damned. That type of unity is a false demonic type of unity. It's not rooted upon the truth of God and his word and his gospel. The unity that Jesus is praying for is a oneness of inner heart, which is expresses itself in the life of the local church through a common mission and a common message. It is an objective spiritual unity that is shared by all true born again believers as they're baptized into the body of Christ. That's the unity that Jesus is praying for. Not that your local church would be represented by every denomination under the world. In verse 22, Jesus continues to pray along the same lines. And he prays that believers may be one. And again, in verse 23, he ups the ante. And you can, say, you can see that Jesus prays that believers may be perfected in unity. Literally, this phrase in verse 23 could be translated perfected into one. And this, this word perfected, it speaks to arriving at a goal of maturity or completeness, 
reaching an intended goal. I want you to notice in verse 23 that the verb perfected, it's in the passive voice. And what that highlights for us is the fact that while believers are called to preserve unity and maintain the unity, that ultimately God is the one who brings about the spiritual unity. He brings it about objectively, making the one new man, establishing peace by the blood of his cross, Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1. But believers are still called to preserve that unity that has been established. One commentator notes, this kind of in-oneness, it cannot be obtained by a human process, but can only be an act from above, a unity that is divine from start to completion. It is a unity by the spirit, not by an organization. All true born-again believers, those who have been baptized into the body of Christ, experience this objective unity. But Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because indwelling sin still plagues believers, this unity is to be maintained and preserved. Because of sins such as pride and, and selfishness and a whole host of other sins, sometimes this unity doesn't look like true unity. So I want us to ask the question this morning, how is it that we can preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? First, we preserve spiritual unity through a selfless consideration of others. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, is it not? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, united in spirit. And in verses 3 through 4, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. We preserve unity by a selfish considera selfless consideration of others. The second means of preserving this unity is through a biblical sacrificial love of others. Earlier in the Upper Room Discourse in John 13, by this they will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Thirdly, we preserve spiritual unity through praying for it, by praying for it. Jesus provides the ultimate example and pattern here in John 17, does he not? Consider this reality. This is Thursday night of the Passion Week. Jesus is merely hours away from his crucifixion. And what is flowing through his veins and his thoughts in his mind, praying on behalf of the church is their unity. And if our Lord Jesus Christ on the night before his crucifixion would take pains to pray that for the church, do you think that it not be pertinent for us to do the same? All these God-ordained means of preserving unity can be summed up with the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter four. 
The worthy walk is described as the one who walks with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The fact that Jesus prays for the spiritual unity of all believers on the night prior to his passion demonstrates just how essential this unity is. So we've seen this first characteristic of Jesus' prayer, request for unity. We saw the petition for unification. There's a second characteristic that I want us to look at, and that is the pattern of unification. We looked at the petition for unification. Now I want us to look at the pattern of unification. Look back with me at verse 21. Jesus prays that they, that is believers, may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. That conjunction, even as in that verse, it establishes the model, the pattern, the standard for which believers are to attain to in their unity. So what is this pattern of unification that Jesus provides in his prayer? Well, the pattern of unification is the very unity that exists amongst the persons of the Godhead. Verse 21, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. In verse 22, you can see this again. Jesus prays that believers may be one just as we are one. New Testament commentator William Hendrickson says, it is a oneness, a unity that is so intimate, so vital, so personal that it is patterned after and based on the relations that exist between the three persons of the Holy Trinity. To say that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, to say that they are one is to highlight the doctrine of the triunity of God. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the triunity of God teaches that within the one being of God, there exists three co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial persons. When we say that these persons are consubstantial with one another, we say that they're identical in essence. Jesus says this earlier in John's gospel, does he not? John 10, 30, he says that I and the Father are one. And again, he does it here as well. John Calvin and his institutes says this. He says, the essence of God is simple and undivided, contained in himself, entirely in full perfection, without partition or divide. The pattern for the unity that Jesus prays for is the very unity that exists amongst the persons of the Godhead. That brings us to a third characteristic of this prayer request for unification. Third characteristic is the purpose of unification. We've looked at the petition, we've looked at the pattern. Now I want us to look at the purpose of unification. Look with me in your Bible at verse 21. 
Jesus prays for this unity and he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And this purpose is not just this theoretical knowledge, this this ethereal knowledge that the father sent the son. But what this knowledge is, is an acceptance and a belief in the historical reality that God the father sent the son on the incarnational messianic mission to accomplish redemption so that they may believe the father sent me. When believers are at odds with one another and divisive with one another, then the believer's evangelistic witness is compromised. This is a big deal, brothers and sisters. It's a big deal. D.A. Carson writes, as the display of genuine love amongst the believers attests that they are Jesus' disciples. As the display of genuine love attests that they were Jesus' disciples, John 13. So this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus is the revealer whom God sent. In verse 23, Jesus reiterates this purpose of the spiritual unity of believers, but he adds an additional element. He says in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me And love them, even as you have loved me. This is incomprehensible. This transcends our finite understanding and expectations. But the Father loves the believer in a comparable way as he does his only begotten Son. Believer, think about that. See how great a love the Father has for us. That we should be called children of God and such we are. 1 John 3. What amazing, marvelous, matchless love. As we ask the question, what does Jesus pray for? We looked at the first prayer request a prayer for unification. But that brings us to a second prayer request that I want us to look at, and that is a prayer for ultimate glorification. A prayer for ultimate glorification. Look back with me in your Bible to verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's in this verse that Jesus transitions from praying for the unity of all believers to praying for their ultimate glorification. And before diving into this verse, I want us to consider What is glorification? What does the Bible teach about glorification? We must understand this, that glorification is the end result of the predestination of the Father and the redemption accomplished by the Son. 
In other words, it is the final stage in the application of redemption. John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, writes, glorification means the attainment of the goal which the elect of God were predestined in the eternal purpose of the Father. And it involves the consummation of the redemption secured and procured by the vicarious work of Christ. It is the final stage in the application of redemption. Paul, in that golden chain that cannot be broken in Romans chapter eight, says, for those whom he, the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Murray defines glorification as the complete and final redemption of the whole person, when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. Philippians chapter three, verses 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await a savior who will transform the body of our humble estate to the state of the glory of his resurrection by the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior. This is what glorification is for the believer. It is the glorious hope that all believers possess. And as we consider this second prayer request, our Lord provides two breathtaking rewards of this glorification. And I want you to look at him with me in verse 24. The first reward that the believer can anticipate is to be with Christ. To be with Christ. Let your eyes glance back at verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Well, this verse obviously begs the question, where does Jesus desire his people to be? It can't mean in the upper room in Jerusalem. No, Jesus is forecasting into the future when he would ascend and return to the glory of heaven. Jesus prays and desires for all of his people to be with him in glory. Now, hopefully, you have the desire to be with Christ one day. Your eyes open and you step foot onto the floor and you're already affected by the effects of the fall. So hopefully you're, you're anticipating that great day when you will be with Christ. And you might have extravagant expectations of what that might be. Streets of gold and pearly gates and a glassy sea. But believers, let me encourage you, just as glorious as those depictions of the eternal state are, and they are glorious, that what makes heaven glorious, what makes it the object of our hope is the fact that he is there. 
and we will be with him. And we will be with him. The one who redeemed us, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, that is what makes heaven glorious is because he's there. And we will be with him. And we will be with him. Is this your constant and earnest expectation in this life? Do you regularly make it a habit to contemplate the glorious hope that you have in Christ? I would encourage you to cultivate a habit of meditating upon and and mulling over these eternal realities and these truths. But practically speaking, what does this look like in the life of the believer? How can you cultivate a mindset that allows your life to be impacted by these eternal realities? You know, most of us carry that gadget in our pocket called a cell phone that has the ability to give you daily reminders. And if you're like me, and if you're very prone to forgetfulness, you use this function of your phone very frequently and very diligently. Add a daily reminder on your phone, one that comes up at the same time every day. Consider these glorious realities. Pray for these, praise God for these. Secondly, a really practical step that you can take is to memorize and store in your heart God's truth. Passages that we've considered, Philippians chapter three, Colossians, or Philippians chapter three and Colossians three. Our citizenship is in heaven. Colossians three, our life has been hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. Pray alongside Jonathan Edwards that God would stamp eternity upon your eyelids so that as you walk throughout this life, that everything that you intake, everything that you read, every interaction that you have is filtered through that perspective. Believers, this is the reward of glorification, to be with Christ. Is this reward not sufficient? Is this not enough for us? If being with Christ was not merely enough, our Lord provides a second breathtaking reward of glorification in our text. And that second breathtaking reward is to behold the glory of Christ. To be with Christ and to behold the glory of Christ. Verse 24 continues to read, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. That word see in verse 24, it can allude to the physical eyesight and the physical apprehension that you garner through your senses. But here in our context, this verb is specifically being used to indicate experiencing of something, partaking of it. It's used this way earlier in John's gospel in John chapter eight. He says that those who believe in me through in my word will not see death, will not experience death. So it's not just merely see, but it is to be consumed by, to understand through personal experience, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how should you respond to this glorious reward? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you that you must with unmitigated zeal and pursue, pursue holiness. 
You see, while these rewards await a future, they have practical implications to how we live in the here and now. You must make this your earnest pursuit and ambition in your life. Listen to what the scriptures say. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And listen to verse three. And everyone, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself right now, purifies himself just as he is pure. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So we respond to these glorious, breathtaking rewards in the here and now by pursuing holiness, by putting to death sin, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, by being renewed in our mind and not conformed to the pattern of this world. And notice that verse 24 continues to express the eternal love which the Father loved the Son. Jesus continues and he says, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Just as believers were chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1.4, and just as Jesus was known, was foreknown as the Redeemer, 1 Peter 1.20, just as believers had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 13.8, so too the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And prior to moving on from this second prayer request and our completion of answering our second question, I want us to consider not just what Jesus is praying for, but I want us to consider who is praying these things. We said earlier that every single one of Jesus's prayers are efficacious, that they're pleasing to the Father. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer when Jesus prays. In your Christian life, do you ever experience doubt? Do you ever experience thoughts of that there's gonna be immense trials and suffering that are gonna befall upon you that are gonna be so demoralizing that you just throw in the towel? Can't take it anymore. Do you have those thoughts? Listen to the comfort of all comforts coming from the lips of the Savior. He prays for your glorification, that you would be with him and that you would behold his glory. And every single prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ is efficacious. Every single one pleases the Father. Christian, if you doubt that you will make it, if you ever doubt that you will finish the race, listen to the prayer of Jesus for you. Listen to the, all of the other scriptural promises. 
1 Peter 1, we have this inheritance reserved in heaven, being protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed. Yes, consider those passages that those whom he has foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, and so on, all the way to glorification. That there is nothing in all of creation that would be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Yes and amen, but consider the reality, which oftentimes we don't do, that Jesus prays for your glorification and that prayer will be answered. That prayer will be answered. Believer, your glorification your being with Christ and beholding the glory of Christ is absolutely certain. Take it to the bank and take heart that Jesus prays that you would make it. As we continue in our study of the text, we come to a third question that we must ask and it is this. Why does Jesus pray for these? We've looked at who does Jesus pray for. We discuss what does Jesus pray for. Now, why does Jesus pray for these? Why does Jesus pray for these specific petitions on behalf of his particular people? Verses 25 and 26 provide the basis and the grounds behind Jesus' request for his own. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. Jesus prays, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus addresses the Father as, O righteous Father, similar to an address earlier in John 17 when he prays, oh, holy father. To affirm that the father is righteous is to affirm that all of his decisions are right, just. In other words, as Jesus offers these petitions before the father, he entrusts them to him, the righteous father who will always do what is right. And you can notice in these verses the stark contrast and the antithesis that exists between Jesus and believers in the unbelieving world. Opposed to unbelieving humanity that rejects and spurns the truth that God the Father out of his deep love sent forth the Son to be the Redeemer. Unbelievers reject that truth. But believers are those who have embraced with the heart of faith this truth through the regenerating and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And it's upon this foundation, the basis that the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, offers these prayers on behalf of his people. And notice in verse 26, that reiterated purpose, where Jesus prays, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus had instructed the disciples earlier in the upper room discourse concerning abiding in him and abiding in his love. In John 15, verses nine through 10, Jesus instructs the disciples saying, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now Jesus 
concludes his high priestly prayer. And he notes that the purpose is so that the love that the father had for him would abide within believers and he in them. Again, in this purpose, we see the amazing reality of the father's love for his own. Brothers and sisters, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17 is one of the most precious chapters in all of scripture. In this chapter, the Savior intercedes on behalf of his beloved. Truly, as we embark in the study of this passage, this entire chapter, we are treading on holy ground. So how should you respond to this chapter if you are a Christian? First, you need to know and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great high priest. You need to understand that before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. It's because of Jesus' office as great high priest by which you have access to the God, to God. The veil has been torn asunder and in two. You have access to God through Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Therefore, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and boldness, knowing that you will find help and grace in time of need. Along with understanding that Jesus prays for you, you need to understand that Jesus prays in perfect accordance with the will of God. That every single one of his prayers is efficacious and answered. It is pleasing to the Father. You know, oftentimes our prayers are so trivial. And notice what Jesus prays for on the night prior to his passion. He prays for the one whom he loves, his church, the very one whom he gave himself up for. And he prays for their unity and their glory. Our prayers, while not neglecting the physical matters of life, should be saturated with spiritual verities and rich theological truth. Finally, beloved brethren, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged that the Lord Jesus prays for your glorification. While the scriptures are replete with the teaching that God will preserve the Christian and the Christian will persevere with the faith, the fact that Jesus prays for your glorification makes it absolutely certain that you will make it. That you'll make it. Christians, Take heart. Your Savior loves you. He not only demonstrated that love for you by dying on Calvary's cross, but he demonstrates that love for you by praying for you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled and amazed at the love that you have for us. We are amazed and humbled at the fact that we have such a mediator, such a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, who always prays for our spiritual good and your greater glory, whose every single prayer request is pleasing to you. Thank you, O oh God, that before your throne, we have a strong and perfect plea our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ever lives and pleads for us. 
inscribe this truth upon our hearts this morning. All for your greater glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.